Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Our host is Shaughnessy Terrell, an attorney on Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney for the Marion County Prosecutor's Office Special Victims Unit. She will explore resources available to help survivors on their path to healing and how the community can come together to help these survivors and find ways to end sexual abuse. This is Support for Survivors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse, as well as professionals and allies within the field of sexual abuse and assault. I'm your host, Shauna C. Terrell, and I'm an attorney on the sexual abuse litigation team at Cohen and Malad, an Indianapolis law firm litigating on behalf of survivors all across the country. Now, before we begin, I want to give listeners a heads up that today's talk will contain some sensitive material. Specific cases of sexual assault will be discussed in detail and strong language will be used. This podcast may not be suitable for some listeners, so please use your discretion. We are happy to welcome Tracy Horth-Kruger. Tracy serves as the Chief Executive Officer of the Indiana Coalition to End Sexual Assault and Human Trafficking, or ICASA HT as we call it. Tracy has a plethora of experience in serving not only survivors of sexual violence, but also intimate partner violence, as well as helping other nonprofits build sustainability. She was also a reporter for WRTV6 before fully immersing herself in the nonprofit world. Of course, there is much, much more to it than that, but I will ask Tracy to talk a little bit more about her background. Tracy, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, we're excited. It's awesome. Um, so let's just get right into it. Why don't you just tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background and how you came to be at ICASA HT? Okay. So um, as you mentioned, I worked at um, WRTV6 a long time ago. During the end of my time there, I got involved and in, we did we hosted the Safe Haven campaign, which was a a media campaign to raise money and awareness about the issue of domestic violence and the lack of transitional housing. End result of that campaign, um, I'm very proud. It was very, it was successful not only in the fund development piece, but in bringing together leadership to open Coburn Place, which um, is a transitional housing facility and has is in now been in existence for over 20 years. So um, amazing. Yeah. From that, when I left the uh, Channel 6, I went to the Domestic Violence Network and it had a wonderful group of advocates since the 70s had been meeting the first Tuesday of every month. And and so we, I started to align with that organization and we developed that. We got it to be the first uh, professionally staffed um, domestic violence network in the history of the city. So that was also very fun. And it also I, is still in existence and doing some amazing work. I want to stop you there real quick, just so people know you're being modest. And you say you joined them. You helped to actually start it and then you led the organization, right? Well, you're kind. It, it, it existed. It was very much grassroots and they did some powerful stuff, but they'd never had its own 501c3 it, uh, or it had a 501c3, but it never had professional staff. And they were really at a point in, this, in the time in the city when funders were saying there needed to be a stronger collaboration among domestic violence service providers. And so uh, we saw the Domestic Violence Network as being that entity that could pull those partners together. And so we, um, we were able to stand that up as a, I hate to say professional organization, but it had paid staff. It was the first time that it had paid staff. And that's been over 20 years too. And it still is, is in existence, which is sure also is. very awesome. thrilling and exciting. 
And then from DVN, uh, where'd you go from there? Um, I decided I worked as a, a nonprofit consultant for over 10 years. Did a lot of interim work as a director, um, did a lot of program and project development for organizations, and just really fell in love with the nonprofit work and the importance of that work and why why they need to be sustained and grown and um, cultivated because of the impact that it that they have on our our structures in the city you know and and how what an important role they do in, in advancing missions that really make life better for so many people absolutely and i think that that is a perfect segue into what you're doing now you are the ceo of icasa ht let's talk a little bit more about what all does icasa ht do because it's a lot so I was actually brought in as the interim to help stand up um, ICESA HT, and, and that was five years ago. Th this is our fifth year, which hardly seems possible. The state had been without a sexual assault coalition, I don't know, for over a year, maybe 17 months or so, and the decision was made by um, some really smart people. I was not in that group to um, <laughs> pursue setting up a, 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 a single, single missioned um, sexual assault coalition. We started working on it and that was five years ago and from that we've grown into uh, the coalition is the CDC designated coalition for the state of Indiana and we are certainly not a direct service provider but our role really is to help support through training technology capacity building through you know all of those kinds of things that all of the people who do do direct service work and also we sit in the position of being able to look at the system the the sexual assault service delivery system from that from that balcony from that macro level and identify where are their gaps where do we need to focus resources and people and energies to fill those gaps what is obviously working really well and um, what are areas that we need to help shore up so we work in that that's our primary thing because our end result always is to make sure that survivors have everything that they need and deserve through their healing journey or however you want to frame that and then also that perpetrators are held accountable and that funding is in place to support these people that are doing incredible work to help survivors and also ultimately prevent it you know mm -hmm. it's a hundred percent preventable so what are we doing to also change that and what's what is what are the conversations and um what needs to be in place to end that to end sexual violence and then just in january we had been doing human trafficking work same kind of way we um we had been given the opportunity to provide the staff management for the ipath task force which represents all of the anti-trafficking providers across the state and so we'd been do, we had been in that work since 17 two years after we started mm -hmm. this past january we officially added human trafficking to our name because it is such an important piece of what we do so we are now ikesa ht that's awesome yeah. uh very important to note that trafficking is prolific internationally globally this growing I hate to say it but it's an industry um, and it keeps it continues to grow and grow and definitely nationally and also here within Indianapolis a lot of people I think still just can't wrap their minds around that you do in the preventive effort I think is super important too well what can we do back here to try to make sure it never happens in the first place 
so within on that macro level and the different types of things you do, you guys provide, you have a sexual assault uh, response team coordinator, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And what does she do? We have Morgan Rumpel is our um, statewide sexual assault response team coordinator. SARTs are such a critical component of the work that we do and to make sure that victims are appropriately represented or, or have access to the criminal justice system if they choose to, to do that. And a SART represents a, the advocate, the sexual assault nurse examiner, the prosecutor, and law enforcement. And really, they case manage. I mean, they look at the intention of a SART is to look at these cases and see what went wrong, what was successful, where were there problems in the system? Where did we drop the ball? Where did we successfully take this across the finish line? And then from that, learn how, what needs to happen so that um, when a police report is filed, when charges are filed, when a report is made, the survivor is uh, treated with the respect that they need and deserve and has access to the services that they need and whether that be through criminal justice or not. But that's really the intention of a SART. And there is a mandate that each county have an active SART. It is an unfunded mandate. So that is is a problem. And it, I mean, that's, it is a problem. So we are trying to, we are going into counties and, and helping them figure out what their protocols and policies are and um, bring those people to the table. And Morgan has done an incredible job at increasing the number of organized SARTs. And the other thing is to make sure that, that there is some alignment among the SARTs, you know, that there's some organization statewide among, among the SARTs. So she's, she's focusing on that too. So that's one of our initiatives. The other one key is we have a Rape Crisis Center coordinator, Haley Rigger. And we, um, I think when we started our work in 15, there were three designated rape crisis centers serving 10 counties out of 92 counties in our state. So wow. to put that in perspective, our, our states on either side, Ohio and Illinois, you know, when we came into existence had like 50 or 60 rape crisis centers, oh we goodness. had three. So clearly that's a need. And what separates a rape crisis center is that single place where a survivor can access services no matter where they are in their journey right right after an incident occurred 10 years down the line 50 years down the line wherever they are in their journey is they have access to um, advocacy they have access to a crisis line they have access to support groups they have you know they have um, so it's an important part it's a very critical piece bottom line we've increased that number we now have 12 serving 44 counties and there are two or three more that meet the criteria of a rape crisis center that will be designated as such so we're we are incrementally increasing our goal is to make sure there's coverage for 92 counties it makes no sense to have 92 rape crisis centers but we right. do have to make sure that there's coverage for those counties so we're very proud of that yeah and we have some so. incredible rape crisis centers operating and are doing fantastic work that's that's really awesome. Mm -hmm. In addition to all of this, you also have a pretty strong education and training effort mm -hmm. as well. You do a lot of that around the state for all kinds mm -hmm. of different disciplines, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. All of them. We do topical trainings. Um, we do law enforcement trainings. We have um, service provider trainings. We we do trainings for businesses. We do trainings. I mean, it's it's whether you're 
a direct service provider or not. I mean, that's, I think that's one of the things that we're really pushing is that this conversation shouldn't only be within the organizations that serve survivors, because we, we've got to get the state and residents in our state and leadership in our state to understand that we've got a problem. And through the sexual assault lens, you know, we're fourth highest in the nation for the number of girls raped in high school. Awful. Really? Fourth highest in the nation. And don't ask me who one through three are because I don't care. We're fourth highest in the nation. That's, that's ridiculous. We're, we, the, and the trafficking hotline, we're 13th in the nation for Ugh. the number of calls to the, the trafficking hotline. So we have got to pull off that very painful Band-Aid and have some true authentic conversations about what sexual violence is about. And it's not about sex. It's about power and control. It's mm -hmm. about having control over another person. And we need to be, and I'll just say it, as Hoosiers, we need to be a little bit more comfortable having conversations about sex, period, and having conversations about sex ed and healthy relationships and all the things because these kids aren't getting that. And I, that's just not Tracy talking. That's statistically shown mm -hmm. that kids aren't getting that kind of education. And so they don't, they don't know. But that's know? how these things are bred in secrecy. And if mm -hmm. we're not talking about it and having those conversations, it doesn't come out because no one's mm -hmm. comfortable with it. And that includes kids telling their parents. And I think that's a great transition into talking about the cultural issues that we're facing in the United States relates to sexual assault. And we'll talk about at least one high profile case, I think really illustrates the huge cultural issue we have. In my experience, and as a longtime member of trying to combat sexual assault in various ways, a lot of people, when they hear about a sexual assault, they automatically think, what'd she do? Knee-jerk mm -hmm. reaction. What did she do? Where, where does that come from? It's always victim blaming. That is the foundation and the crux of rape culture. And that's what we're talking about. Rape culture is this environment that allows this lack of education and this victim blaming to continue. It puts the uh, blame of the incident on the victim and does not hold the perpetrator accountable. And I, I think it's easier. I think it's easier to just blame the victim. What were you wearing? Had you been drinking? Mm -hmm. Why were you there? Well, you should be able to wear what you want. You know, you should be able to be at a party and not worry about getting raped. You know, you should. The, I mean, it's just, why aren't we asking? Why aren't we flipping that question and saying, why in the world did you think it was okay to rape somebody? It, in what sphere is that fine? because it isn't. And we're not, that's what we're not asking these questions. And again, it's 100% preventable. 100%. Sure is. And I think that you're right. We have to flip the script earlier on or we're never mm -hmm. going to affect great change. So I, I'd like to talk specifically about the Steubenville rape case that happened back in August of 2012. Mm -hmm. I think most people are, have heard of it, maybe are familiar with it, but to give a little bit of background, we're talking about Steubenville, Ohio. I think it's about the population's like 18,000-ish, not very big. The football teams, the pride and joy of the community. It's one of the top programs in the state of Ohio. That becomes relevant. And over the summer, to give a very concise version of what happened, high school kids at a party, they actually were at three different locations. They started at one kid's house, moved to another, and then eventually ended up at a third kid's house, all football players. There's a girl. She's had a lot to drink. She's passed out. She's throwing up. 
um, not conscious for most of this. And she is publicly and repeatedly sexually assaulted by two boys on the football team. Other kids are present during the multiple assaults. Not only did they not help her, they're taking videos, they're taking pictures, and they're passing them around on social media. It's on YouTube, it's on Twitter, it's on Instagram. And I want to note that that's how this actually really blew up in the media. The local media did not give it the attention it deserved. A crime blogger went to all of these kids' social media, pieced it all together, and then sent it to the bigger news outlets who finally gave it the immediate attention it deserved. And I sincerely believe, had she not done that, it never would have made national news. No doubt. I agree with you. No doubt. You know, it's um, Steubenville is probably one of the most profound. We, I say probably the one of the most because it's public and because we know about it. We know that there are infinitely more situations like Steubenville that were that have never been elevated to the public um, to the public period. But if you if you want to if you really want to understand that case, you should people should watch Roll Red Roll mm -hmm. because it is it is a uh, it's all about that case and it show and it uses the video that people that use their cell phones to record it. I mean it it is so profoundly upsetting and you have to understand going in that it is very upsetting to watch. It's really unthinkable. But this is what this this is a classic example of not wanting to believe that two football players would be capable of acting like that. And so throughout, and, and they were eventually convicted, yeah. right? That, yeah. So, mm -hmm. but what the victim went through, even though she wasn't known, her identity wasn't known for um, the just, her life became a living hell after mm -hmm. the, the, the incident occurred. Like that wasn't enough of a living hell. It, right. it became such, she became the focus of such vitriol and such hatred because she was trying to ruin the careers of these two really good football players. Absolute insanity. It's still hard. I've taught so much on this case. I've used it in dozens of presentations mm -hmm. with all kinds of different types of audiences. And it's still difficult for me to wrap my mind about around it when I go back and look. And I'm going to read some of the um, texts that were sent by kids at that party to other kids that had been there earlier, other kids who weren't there. And I want to reiterate again now that this is graphic and it's upsetting. Mm -hmm. So if anybody needs to jump out now. So verbatim, some of the texts that were sent. Song of the Night is definitely rape by Nirvana. I have no sympathy for whores. Dude, they're going to rape her. She had no idea she was getting pounded. Some people deserve to be peed on. You don't need any foreplay with a dead girl. If it ain't wet now, it's not ever going to be wet. A wang in the butthole and she's not even moving. She's deader than OJ's wife. It's hard. I it's hard. It, it's hard and it's it's unforgivable in my book. It's just and and what what led those kids they were kids you know what led those kids to think it was okay to make those statements and to not help that that young lady and uh, i just i can't imagine i can't imagine the hell that she went through and i can't imagine the hell she's still going through frankly that the one person in that in roll red roll one of the detectives when he says 
why didn't why didn't somebody help where were why didn't somebody help why didn't somebody stop it that is that is the thing that haunts me about that whole case and all of the cases because actually we all need to figure out how to be effective bystanders that can be done in a way that is does certainly not put yourself into danger but also it, it's it's so easy to be an effective bystander and it really is just about paying attention and it's about knowing you know you go to a you go to a, a party and and you see you can see you you get a sense come on we've all been there we can see where something's headed right and all you have to do is redirect it's not that hard and one of the one of our chief curriculums that we have the speak up speak out program is to, is really to talk about that it's to talk about but it isn't just about the a b and c's of being a bystander it, it talks about this whole culture that keeps people from becoming bystanders and what does that mean so I don't it's fear of getting involved it's fear of being that person you know the the tattletale the whatever mm -hmm. well grow up I think you're being an adult you know I, I don't accept that as a as an excuse and and um, this young lady was unconscious she was unconscious I mean what I just it is it's it, it, it is beyond description. I, I can't find the words to really talk about how awful that is. But here's the sad thing. You know, Steubenville is not the only time that this has happened. There are so many, so many situations where this, this mentality of, you know, and it was also the two young men involved were star football players. And so there's this bizarre adulation that we have toward people like that that we want to be in their sphere right and so we don't we don't want to jump in and be mm -hmm. the the person who calls them out on their behavior mm -hmm. that has to change you know that has to change that's and there's there's so many simple ways to 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 do that but I still say we have to back it up even further than that you know to really get get people to understand and you can start this little you can you can start talking about consent and healthy relationships with with toddlers i mean they're doing it more now they're doing mm -hmm. it more now which i think is great but you got to understand that we have boundaries and there's acceptable behavior and there's not acceptable behavior and there is such a powerful and a richness in a healthy relationship let's talk about that let's be open about what that is don't shroud that in secrecy and, and not educate our kids so that when mm -hmm. they get into these situations they're going to make better choices and they're they're going to make better choices and they're also not going to be afraid to say you know what that's not good absolutely that's couldn't agree good. more we got to talk about it and just like you said this is going on all the time this is just because of their social media posts it gives us something mm -hmm. to actually see out in the open it's not new these types of situations have been going on forever they're still going on it happens and real quick just so everybody knows we've talked about roll red roll it is on netflix so mm -hmm. and it's not like we're paid to promote it or something mm -mm. but if anybody wants to go mm -hmm. give it a watch i also highly recommend it it's super super compelling but you know what shaughnessy we have to say again it is tough to watch it it's is. tough and so you you have to steel yourself and prepare yourself for that. And if it becomes too tough, you need to stop. You need to, Agreed. because it, it's just really, it's, it's hard. It's hard to watch. Absolutely. Especially for survivors. I think mm -hmm. you got to mm -hmm. take care of yourself first. And that's a, you know, the trauma that she suffered 
and continues to suffer is multi-layered. You have mm-hmm. just, you've touched on it already. You have the initial sexual assault trauma, which follows people their entire lives. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they put all this on social media kind of cuts both ways because we, we wouldn't all know about it to the extent that we do and they were able to do something and we're able to teach with it, but it also is severely damaging for her. And I want to go into that a little bit. I've got a few other things that I scrounged up. There were some other kids who were interviewed after and they weren't there. Two females. Yeah, the boys weren't in the right, but she was at a party she shouldn't have been at. And the other, when you put yourself in that situation, you have to take responsibility for your actions. So I guess the price to pay according to them for drinking is to be sexually assaulted publicly in front of all of your peers. That is ridiculous. It is. And, and you know what, how many of us can say there, but for the grace of God, go I, right? I mean, this is the thing we, we sort of, we don't, we don't sit back and think, oh my God, you know, that could have been me. That could have been my friend that could have been, you know, I, and I, that drives me crazy. The boys will be boys phrase drives me crazy. And here's the thing. Most boys don't act like that, Mm-mm. you know, and, and I say this a lot, you know, we know certainly sexual violence occurs in all communities, you know, whether LGBTQIA, it's um, all of us, everybody can be a victim of sexual violence. Generally, and statistically, the, the vast majority of perpetrators are men. Mm-hmm. But of that, of the men, the vast majority of them don't perpetrate. So where are their voices? That's what, I mean, I, I think that part of the problem that we have also in this movement to end sexual violence is that it's seen as a women's issue, and that could not be further from the truth. It's a, it's a person issue. It's a person. It's a people. It's a citizen's issue. And so we are trying to figure out how to make it an issue that engages everyone in these conversations, because I know, I think about the, the men I know in my life they're incredible men. They abhor this behavior. So we got to figure out ways to get them to be engaged in the work. Such a good point. And because they will also have tremendous influence over boys coming up, right? And they'll, they model great behavior. They taught, you know, they're great role models. And, you know, we need to just show that you don't, this, it's not okay to behave that way. It's just not. And, but I can't be critical of, you know, it's, it's, we have to bear the responsibility to a certain extent, because we're not giving them alternatives. Well, yeah, to take that point, you're absolutely right. And when they're, when people are not only not holding them accountable, but, but trying to excuse their behavior, what message does that send to both them, victims, and future victims and perpetrators? In that case, again, I know I have all these quotes today, but it's just so, just, I'm so befuddled by it. There were citizens that said things like nine times out of 10, the woman wanted it. When I was that age, if the boys did that, they got in trouble. Well, now they want to take him to jail. Those poor boys on social media. I'm not saying what they did isn't wrong, but it's not rape. It's the girl's fault. Hashtag don't drink. Maybe if you don't want to get raped, don't get blackout drunk. Jane Doe, Jane Doe is a whore. Fuck Jane Doe. And another person commented that the video, the video of her being sexually assaulted by two people in front of various peers was hilarious. Again, it it befuddles me to some extent, but the the other end of the, I I know because I've prosecuted these cases so often and I've had to deal with that 
going into the courtroom because those people on social media who those people are sitting with the anonymity of um, the internet first. And so we are given this, you know, small amount of time during jury selection to flush some of those people out because this, this is what a lot of people think a lot. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we all, this, this huge cultural issue that's the problem. That's why it continues to happen. It, you're right. You're absolutely right. And the other thing, too, is we do do a pretty good job at teaching risk reduction. So walk with a buddy, make sure somebody knows where you are, you know, have pepper spray in your purse. We're still putting the responsibility and the onus on the victim, the yep. potential victim, for not being sexually assaulted. We are not having conversations with potential perpetrators to say this is this is unacceptable this is how you behave this is you know this is the respect it really it's just having respect for people it's having respect for other people it's that simple and so how do we in our everyday lives how do we start chipping away at mm -hmm. ending rape culture well you know what jokes about anatomy are not funny they're just not funny they're just not funny. People are using the word rape in, in just really inappropriate ways like, you know, that test really raped me. No, it didn't. The test was hard. Let's not make that a commonly used word that dilutes the meaning of what it really is, right? Catcalling, just silly behaviors that if left unaddressed or if, if we don't change that or try to get people to not do that then it then it's it's almost like it's a pass it's like okay then i can escalate this i can and there there's some really great illustrations of the advancement of rape culture you know and how it starts at the most basic of levels which might might get a chuckle or a snicker from people right and then it just elevates 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 and then all of a sudden we're we're at rape yeah, that's totally true. It's such an important point that words matter. They do mm -hmm. because you, it normalizes it when we use it in a joking manner. And I don't know if you'd ever, um, there was a, if you've heard of this, there was a um, study done within the military and I, I'll have to find it. I don't know what it's called, where it was anonymous to encourage uh, truthfulness. And the first question was, have you ever raped someone? And by, it was 95% said no. And then mm -hmm. the next question was, have you ever had sex with someone they were too drunk that was too drunk to consent and the numbers changed drastically and it's like hey guys that's rape that's what that means and people i just don't know they don't get it mm -hmm. well you know our law doesn't support i mean consent is the biggest issue really that's that's where i we believe as the coalition that 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 is our our foundation is consent and understanding what consent is. And we need to have legislation that supports mm -hmm. that definition of consent. Right now, you and you, you need to explain this much better than I, being an attorney <laughs> and having represented people, but you know, you have to prove force, threat of force, injury, basically, to and and really what about that person who's unconscious? You know, there's not gonna be force threat their force or injury, right you know we and do how have do we do have a provision within the rape statute and yeah it's it's basically three different ways it's either force throw force when the person is unaware that it is happening mm -hmm. and then the third is if they're mentally disabled mm -hmm. but yeah it's definitely very poorly written and it's absolutely convoluted well but the point is like with the questioning with them in the military study you know have you ever raped anybody no 
well, did you have sex with someone who was unconscious and they couldn't give consent? Yes. Okay. So that's, that's why we need to broaden, mm -hmm. I think, the definition and the conversation around that because we all know, you know, how the brain works in trauma mm -hmm. and, you know, they, you can freeze and you're absolutely unable to fight off. You're, you're unable to do that physically because your brain is telling you not to, right? So if there are no physical injuries or there's no tons of bruises or cuts or anything, you know, then that shouldn't be a determinant as to whether or not a rape occurred. Right. So that's, that's what we're trying to do mm -hmm, is just, absolutely. but it also, it also just educates people about what consent is and what it isn't and um, how important that is, how just vitally important. And if somebody can't tell you that they want to have sex, they're unconscious, guess what? They don't want to have sex. It's not that hard. You know, it's just, that's what it drives be. me that's crazy. Sure. It's not that hard. <sighs> so, um, so I just, I think that the, at the core of this is just, we've got to get us to the point where we are comfortable. First of all, there has to be recognition that this happens. Mm -hmm. This happens. Trafficking happens. Sexual violence happens. And, and people who end up in trafficking oftentimes have been they've lived in horrific situations where they've been molested as children mm -hmm. or they've been it's raped usually as just children. the tip of the it's, iceberg. It's the tip of the iceberg. So it's so complex. People don't, oh, we could spend hours and hours and hours <laughs> yes. talking about this. It all, it, it, people don't choose really to go into the life of being trafficked. There are systemic reasons. There's, there's systems that have failed them. There are families that have failed them. There are, you know, that, that have, have gotten them to this point. And if we don't have those conversations at the back end, at the front, you know, when this, at the found, at the beginning of this, then we're never going to really um, end it. But we don't get overwhelmed by that because we know we can end it. And so we just keep plugging away. This has been really, really awesome. And I had, you know, other points that I wanted to move into, but we've taken up so much time. So I'm hope, my hope is that you will come back on and we can discuss some of those other things. Again, we could have this, we could have a conversation every day for months and not get through everything that needs to be gotten through. So just in closing, Tracy, do you have anything else that you think that listeners, you know, need to know or hear today, anything you can give to people to affect some change? I would encourage people to get engaged and, and that can be at any level that they're comfortable. First and foremost, do research, read articles, read some books, you know, really dig into some of these higher profile cases mm -hmm. and truly try to get an understanding of, well, first of all, the profound impact, the profound and lifelong impact on survivors and, and how, is there a way that you could become involved in helping to support survivors through volunteering at rape crisis centers or, you know, it, there's so many things that people mm -hmm. can do, but also to, to, I would really love to see folks talk to their school systems and talk to their community groups and talk to places where people need to be hearing this information. And really, I mean, the statistics are depressing. And, and it, it is overwhelming, but at the same time, 
there's power in that shared vision of a state without sexual violence and human trafficking. And if we can get over our discomfort about discussing these things and really join forces, I think that we can, we can have an incredible impact on the, the health of our state. And that's really what the bottom line is. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it does feel overwhelming when you think about a starting point. But I always tell people, take one step today. You take one step today, you're one step closer tomorrow. And if we all did that, think about the uh, change that we could affect. So absolutely. Tracy, again, thank you so much for being here. I truly appreciate all that you and everyone at ICAST-HT continue to do to fight for survivors. And thank you to our listeners. If you're tuning in here, you care. If you find value in our program, please continue to listen and to share this podcast with others as we talk to the different leaders in this field. And as always, please submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time.